Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Setting the Tone Interviews. My name is Elizabeth and today Daniel, Lauren and I are a little starstruck but also overjoyed to get to the chance to sit down with Noah Wiley. Mr. Wiley is better known to ER fans as Dr. John Carter, making a staggering 254 appearances across 13 seasons of the show. Yeesh. Mr. Wiley, thank you so much for taking the time with it, to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So to kick us off, how did you get your start in acting and what led you to getting the job on ER? Uh, I started acting in high school, doing high school plays and, you know, a couple parents, friends, uh, complimented me and that felt good so I just kept chasing that feeling of doing something that I seem to be pretty good at all the way uh, into a career. Um, I started right out of high school. I didn't go to college and uh, I was very fortunate very early on. Um, fortunate to get enough jobs to get in the union, get my feet wet. Fortunate to fall into a really wonderful acting class with a wonderful teacher named Larry Moss. Fortunate to find a wonderful agent who really kind of nurtured and supported my early career. Fortunate enough to book work, uh, and then fortunate enough to not work for a while and get a very early taste of what a roller coaster life this can be. And then in one of those down periods, um, I suddenly decided to lower my standard. I had only auditioned up until that point for movies and for plays, and I kind of wanted to stay away from TV. And then I needed a job, and I uh, signed with a new manager, and she sent me the pilot script for ER, which was a two-hour pilot script. So I thought it was a feature script. It had been written originally as a feature script, as you probably know, by Michael Crichton in 1975. Um, and I just really liked the character. I liked how, of all the other characters, he was the youngest, the greenest, and had the farthest to travel. He got to be the funniest. And uh, so I thought, well, even when I found out it was a show, I'll audition for it. And even if I get it, they'll cancel it within the first season. <laughs> and uh, I'll be on my way. And I auditioned for John Levy, the casting director. And uh, the audition scene was the scene where I'm administering an IV to, um, it turned out, Frank, mm -hmm. the death Troy Evans, yeah. <laughs> just uh, Troy Evans' cop. Um, and it went really well. And they brought me back for the producers and to network. and. I tested against one other actor, a guy named Rafael Sabarge, who a lot of people know. He's been a wonderful performer for many, many years. And the two of us teed off against each other, and I walked away with the part that changed my life. Wow. Well, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but like, what were your first impressions of John Carter, the character, when you read that script for the first time? And like, did you make an immediate connection with the guy, or was it like, I have to kind of learn how to be this guy a little bit? A little bit of both. Um, I mean, my mom is an at the time, an orthopedic nurse, and having spent 10 years prior to that as an OR nurse, I grew up sort of around the medical community. So that seemed like uh, an easy fit. I also went to uh, prep school for you know high school. I went away to boarding school. And so I had, uh, and yet I found myself working in restaurants around people who didn't go to boarding school. So I liked the, that I, understood what a fish out of water sensibility the character would be in coming from a bluebed background but needing to earn his stripes in the trenches as it were um i just uh i remember just wanting to really dive into the research and put myself in the shoes of a third year medical student at the time there were a lot of wonderful pieces of source material there were diaries being kept by medical students that were being published there was sort of a seminal book in the 70s called House of God that was very 
you know, detailed about the emotional journey of a young physician. Uh, and I just, I soaked all that up, went on a few rounds with a few doctors and just wanted to look at the very least believable. Mm -hmm. you know? Like we might have to add that house of God to our book reports, yeah, Daniel. <laughs> oh, it's kind of, you know, I don't know that it holds up to the modern era. It's written by a guy named Dr. Samuel Shem. Um, they actually made a, not a very good movie about it. <laughs> they made a film, a film of it with, uh, I think, Charlie Hayes. Oh, okay. It? Yeah, we just, well, we like getting different perspectives from different eras, so we may look into that. But um, what are your memories of filming the pilot episode? And at what point did you know that you all had something special? Because I know it was a bit of a beast with that pilot being a two-parter. I don't know that I knew that I felt we had anything special while we were making it. Uh, you know, we shot it in an old dilapidated hospital in East LA. Uh, I remember I had the crappiest car of any of the actors and was sort of like, <laughs> offering to give rides in case nobody wanted to park their car in the neighborhood we were shooting in. So I didn't think anybody would touch my car. Um, I just, you know, I was eager to do a good job and I was eager to sort of, you know, steal a scene or two if I could, but my investment was only in my performance, mm -hmm. you know, as all of ours were. We didn't know each other and we, we certainly didn't have any sense of camaraderie yet. Um, we were, impressed by the fact that Michael Crichton was involved and we were impressed by the fact that Steven Spielberg was tangentially involved at that time. Um, and intimidated a little bit to, to try to make a show that was worthy of that pedigree. Uh, but it wasn't until we shot the pilot and I sort of, I, I hung out in that summer with George and Eric and you know, we went on this trip to Spain that we've, I, I, that was sort of, legendary um, <laughs> and it was on that trip that we all sort of started talking about what it would be like if we came back and the series got picked up you know we were hearing good things but nobody was quite sure there was a lot of money on chicago hoping the better medical pilot um but that was the beginning of it of thinking like wow we could all be working together for a while and then we came back and we when it got picked up we all went to um the affiliate announcements in new york at avery fisher hall where they have a huge convention of all the people that are going to be buying ad time. And they talk about all the returning shows and they talk about all the new shows. And they showed a clip of, uh, of our show, of our pilot. And it was the first time any of us had ever seen the frame of it. We we're standing in the wings <laughs> waiting to walk out and we're looking at ourselves projected on this massive screen. And you hear this voiceover say, if you thought there were no heroes left in the world. And then boom, 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 boom. boom. <laughs> fast cutting pilot oh i get choked i'm thinking about it and we just sat there our jaws on the floor and then the place was like silent and then it erupted and wow. we walked out and like waved at everybody and we looked at each other and we're like holy shit <laughs> just for for reference sake how old are you when all this is happening we shot the pilot i was 22 i believe wow oh my yeah. god wow oh Jeez. Wow. No, so the show was, of course, known for its fast-paced, medically accurate dialogue. And we've been told by many others that you seem to be the best at learning and retaining all the complex terminology. What was that learning curve like for you? And how did you adapt so quickly in such a fast-paced environment? Well, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things where I, I was really ambitious and I was really hungry to be uh to be good and 
you know, I, I'm not embarrassed to say I just worked hard. You know, I went home every night and I just ran that stuff. And I ran it so much that I developed this real facility for remembering dialogue where I could almost picture it on the page as it's written and see it, which makes it not a photographic memory, more of a typographic memory, mm -hmm. but not one that has been really consistent. I didn't have it in high school and it doesn't really apply to, you know, the article I read this morning on my phone. Right. It really has to do with dialogue and the way the conversation flows from one idea point to the next. But um, yeah, I'm, that's very nice that they've all said that, you know, I, I uh, it's a good muscle to have if you're an actor. I'm very grateful for it. Is that something that applied to your future projects after that? Like the all the different stuff you've done for TNT? Well, that was sort of the joke. I mean, I go home, we go home every night and learn eight or nine pages of medical dialogue with these gigantic speeches all in technical mumbo jumbo. And then we come in and we'd film, you know, seven or eight pages of that before lunch in a walk and talk one and then we'd knock off the rest of it at day, shooting 12 pages a day. And then you get on any other job where, you know, five or six pages on a movie is a big day. Eight pages on a TV show is almost unheard of. And we were shooting 12, 13 pages regularly and memorizing that. So every other job I went on, I didn't quite have to use that muscle <laughs> as much um, and probably have lit it atrophy over the years. I'd be uh, uh, scared to get an ER script and have to commit it to memory today. It's like taking a baseball player, like a professional baseball player, and they're used to 98 mile an hour fastballs. You put them in a batting cage and they suck. You know, it's like you, you're just. Oh. Um, totally. So uh, obviously being one of the main characters, um, you often got paired up with visiting guest stars. Uh, in fact, you were often paired with, it seemed like there was a pattern of old Hollywood guest stars. They kind of trusted you to run with those a lot. Um, some names like Rosemary Clooney, Red Buttons, Mickey Rooney, uh, Sanford Meisner, Bea Richards, among many, many others. Um, what was it like for you as an actor to not only work alongside these you know, big legendary names, but to be trusted to work so closely with them? Uh, and it wasn't until I read your question that you sent me that I ever even put it in terms of them trusting me. I just felt like I was getting away with um, <laughs> with it, you know. Uh, and I, I, I attributed it more to the sensibilities of the character that Carter had an affinity for children and old people, basically. He had a, a reverence for older people and was very respectful to their journey and uh, had a, a sort of felt like the kid in every crowd, so an affinity for young people as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'd add Eli Wallach and Alan Alda to that yes. list. I mean, mm -hmm. the list was, you know, really, really long, and I was so fortunate to get to work with all those people. Um, most of them I had a really good frame of reference for their work and really enjoyed the experience, and they, I think, enjoyed me peppering them with questions, and they were all very kind and, and courteous. Ernest Borgnine, I'd add yeah. to that list, yep. too. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, a few of them I wish I had known better. You know, in retrospect, I have a better understanding for a Bea Richards than I maybe did at the time. I knew Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I knew a couple other things. But now, you know, I understand how important she was uh, and, and the, really the breadth of her career. Yeah. So there's a few people I wish I could go back again and, and do over. But for the most part, I, that was the most gratifying work, was getting to work with all these tremendous people. And hearing their stories and um, feeling like I was a link in their chain. Yeah, definitely. That's an excellent way to put it. Um, one of the things we've noticed as we've gone through the early seasons is your knack for physical comedy. Is that something you've worked on or was that something you've always been good at? 
both you know <laughs> i don't think you're i think anybody that's good at anything that makes it look easy is hiding the fact that they've worked really hard to right. make it look easy uh, there's very i mean certain people are just naturally adept at things but you do have to continually keep that muscle working um I remember I had a, we had a garage door that you had to push on the top of it to get the bottom of it to lift up. And every time my mother would pull into the driveway, it was my job to open the garage door. And I'd push on the top of it. And just as it came up under my chin, I'd slap it and snap my head back like it had clocked me. And I'd go, bang! And my mother would always fall for it. <laughs> and I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world, that I could make people laugh by pretending to hurt myself. So that was like my thing in school is I would pretend to hit my head into a wall or you know open a door into my nose. Um, they're just simple gags. And then on ER, it was the quickest way to distinguish myself. So I ran, yeah. you know, I thought they're gonna give me a lot of leeway here in a scene. I could steal a scene just by holding a tray of urine and slowly accidentally tipping it back on myself. And not even have a line, but being able to sort of keep the characters' naivete and youthfulness alive without it being scripted. So I kept leaning into those moments whenever possible. And then they started scripting them. They started writing them. I, I remember coming back for the second season and seeing, like, Carter comes in carrying coffee and trips up in some Christmas <laughs> light and into a ladder, which causes someone to fall. And, th and I remember thinking, like, well, just... You know, I don't want to be the funny guy. Something. Yeah, I'm still right. Carter. I don't want to be the funny guy. Right. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We have, we'll compromise on that. Yeah, but no, that that's a, a testament to your skill that you were able to be the funny guy sometimes, but it never detracted from the more dramatic stuff. Like it was, it was always believable well, either way. It's all arcs, right? You just want yeah. to keep flipping the coin. If I can make you laugh and, and make you feel that I'm a human being that's worthy of your empathy and your pity. It's such a small jump to having that character tug your heartstring. You know, you're already invested. Um, and frequently, it's harder to do it the other way around. You know, it's harder to get someone to buy in emotionally through empathy and, and then to get them to find you funny. But it works really well if you can do it the other way around. Yeah, we're we're getting into the um, the mid season six stuff with Lucy and the stabbing and everything, and it's gonna be we're not ready, <laughs> but we'll we'll manage. So completely, the the heartstrings will be pulled. Yeah. So we've heard from so many others about the pivotal leadership roles that George and Anthony played for the cast off the screen. What lessons did you learn from them as the years went on for, and you yourself became sort of the elder statesman and leader of the cast? That's a great question. Um, you know, Anthony was very much the, the head of the ensemble and we all kind of fell in behind him and he would fight all the political fights on behalf of the cast and the crew. Uh, but then George was almost more like a, uh, corrupting uncle, you know, who's still, <laughs> still an adult, still, yeah. but has been around a little bit and knows the way the game is played and knows the way this game needs to be played in order for us to be successful. And so, you know, I remember a meeting that George called in his trailer very early on with Tony's permission, I assume, where he just sort of said to us, you know, here's the deal guys, you know, I've been on like 15 pilots that haven't gotten turned to series. And I don't know what makes a show work, but I know makes a show not work. And this one's gonna be done differently. We're gonna be nice to everybody and we're gonna be prepared. And we're gonna be on time and we're gonna be 
Uh, we're going to take our work seriously, but we're not going to take ourselves seriously. We're not going to put a division between foreground and background or cast and crew. We're going to be in this. And we were all young enough and idealistic enough to just say, yep, you know, <laughs> and that's how we did it. There was never a fight on set the whole time I was there. Nobody ever locked themselves in a trailer or had an attitude problem. We kept each other's counsel. We always were able to communicate and it was a really tight ensemble. Did you do anything similar yourself for like when once the cast had really changed over like in seasons like 10, 10 and 11 or so? Yeah, I've, I've stolen that speech. <laughs> <laughs> I gave that speech on just about every pilot I've done since the year. <laughs> Listen guys, this, this one's gonna be good for you. I don't, you know, since I, yeah, um, shamelessly so. We won't yeah, tell okay. anyone, it's fine. A, a good speech is well, a good Well, what speech. I learned, <laughs> I learned it a little earlier when I did a, a Few Good Men with Rob Reiner, and I, I saw his graciousness with me and everybody on set. And I learned, if you want somebody's best work, they cannot be scared, and they can't be intimidated. Mm. They need to feel welcome. They need to feel comfortable. They need to feel competent and trusted. They need to feel relaxed. And the only way that you can do that is by extending the glad hand and making it an environment where people's best work is what's asked of them and all the other shit falls away. And I've tried to maintain that on every set that I've gone on. Just, you know, this is what we're all, we all get to be here. This is such a great opportunity to get to do what we do for a living. And we get to do it, you know, without any of the, the politics that sometimes derail a really good project. Mm -hmm. Um, as part of ER's storylines covering the atrocities in Darfur, you did some location shooting in South Africa. What was that experience like? And were you happy with the finished product? Yeah, that was a great storyline. That was one that was extremely close to me. I had an opportunity, I forget in between which years, but I was contacted by a medical relief organization called Doctors of the World, which was sort of an American-based version of Doctors Without Borders, to go and be in a refugee camp in the in Macedonia during the war in Kosovo and watched the work that these doctors were doing. And I spent about two weeks in this camp just getting my mind blown, but really coming away impressed by this type of medicine. These, for the most part, ER doctors, but some GPs leaving their practices voluntarily to go and do this kind of frontline triage medicine just where the need was most greatest, you know, even at great risk to themselves, oftentimes with zero supplies and resources to work with. And I came back really like preaching that this could be a great storyline. And John Wells picked up the thread and, and we started off by doing the Belgian Congo episodes in, in Hawaii, and then um, got to do those Darfur episodes in Africa, which, um, you know, being there only lent to the air of authenticity and the experience. But both of those story, uh, those arcs uh, were two of my favorite I did on the whole show. For sure. Did uh, I think I heard that you received some kind of award from Jimmy Carter for some work you'd have done in Africa or something? No, that was a different thing. I got to meet President Carter. He came to the set. He, as part of the Carter, uh, I guess, Institute, uh, he, one of the things he was working on was trying to eradicate a disease called guinea worm disease okay. from um, Southern Sudan and, and a certain region in Africa that had been 
the last to sort of adopt these very simple measures. It's if you just sort of put cheesecloth over whatever you drink out of, it's a parasitic worm that's in contaminated water, but it can be really nasty. And it was one of the last diseases that we had the ability to eradicate, but this was the last region in Africa that was hard to get the message out to. So he thought it'd be fun to sort of have President Carter and Dr. Carter <laughs> team up, do basically a PSA on how to, you know, do the preventable measures to prevent guinea worm disease. Um, well, that's cool. Yeah, it was wonderful. I got to spend an afternoon with him and, and he signed the book to me and uh, was not happy that I was living with my girlfriend out of wedlock. But, uh, <laughs> was very, wanted, wanted me to let him know when we got married, which I did. And uh, that was, it was a great afternoon. That's awesome. That's, that's cute. Uh, so one of the most memorable relationships on the show, of course, was kind of that brotherly bond forged between uh, your and Eric LaSalle's characters. Um, and I know through watching interviews and just things that we picked up over the years. We know that that relationship kind of um, went beyond the screen as well a little bit. You guys are really good friends outside of the show. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship, how it evolved over time when you were on the show and kind of what it means to you today? Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not too heavy. It's a small question. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. I'm very proud of that relationship. Um, you know, I think it was one of the first times in TV where the dynamic between a black character and a white character's power was exactly reversed, where the white character was killing himself for the approval and validation of the black character. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, you know, it, it's, it's my favorite love story of the whole show <laughs> is watching these two men who have nothing in common forge a mutual respect and admiration for each other. Um, our relationship on screen and off screen were very similar, you know, and, and not always linear, mm -hmm. you know, we're very different men and we live our lives very differently. And sometimes we're in great simpatico and sometimes we aren't, but um, that's sort of what made those two characters kinetic chemistry, exciting and what makes our friendship <laughs> continually interesting. <laughs> yeah. So is there an episode, moment, or accomplishment from your time on the show that stands out as per personally significant or memorable? Uh, well, there's a, f I mean, there's a few. Um, the first one that jumps to mind was um, the biggest sort of jump for me conceptually was when John pitched the drug addiction storyline to me. Yeah. Because I just remember thinking that it hadn't really been supported by any writing up until that point, you know, and... His point was that, you know, addiction is really ubiquitous and it could be anybody's face. And the least expected face may be the most powerful way of telling the story. And the way he pitched it, entering into it as the subsequent sort of uh, abuse of self-medication after an injury made organic sense to me. Um, and getting to, you know, there's so many ER doctors, it runs, I think it used to, if it doesn't anymore, it was the specialty that ran the highest incidence of drug addiction of any of the medical specialties. So getting to sort of sensitively walk through how that can happen uh, to somebody who doesn't think it could possibly happen to them, I thought was really effective. And I've been contacted through the years by many people who've told me that that storyline was either catalytic in getting them into a program or validating and keeping them in a program. Um, so I'd I, I maybe say that. So one of the most memorable scenes to me in the entire show was at the end of season six with, with you and Eric LaSalle when he's trying to get you to go to rehab. Did, how, how was that to film? Do you have any specific memories of that one? 
Is that on the street when I punch him? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just remember thinking I'm going to hit him with a left and I'll never see him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn my body just so that he'll never see him. I'm going to come around on him. Um, there were a few, you know, there's a couple moments. There was one, there was another one where I met, he shoved me to the ground by uh, an L station. Like, you can go back and find these seminal scenes between the characters where it was like, we're graduating to the next level now. Yes. Um, yep. That was maybe the biggest one in some ways because it was the first time that he stepped across the divide to come to my aid and invest himself in my journey um, directly. Yeah. As a result, having he had to be demonstrative about how he felt, you know. Uh, that was a good scene. That whole storyline was great. Uh, oh, yeah. I didn't like the little beard that I had. <laughs> really wish that we hadn't gone that way, but um, we did. I got to meet John Doe from the band X in rehab. That's super cool. <laughs> All right. You kind of you you had two different beards uh, over throughout your time on the show. There was the the one we just passed last season, season five, right? Was it five or four? I can't remember. It was five. I think it was the beginning yeah, it was of five. Beginning of five. And then there, at the time when we talked about it, there was a very divisive fan discussion about the season five beard versus the season ten beard. That the season ten beard mm. is the superior beard, and that you really you nailed it on the season ten beard. That the season five season five beard was the first beard I ever grew in my life. I grew it in the off season. In the, in the oh. period, my my ex and I took a whole driving tours for the East Coast, and I grew this beard, and I was so proud of it, and I knew they were going to make me shave it. And coincidentally, George had grown one too. <laughs> and so we showed up together, and I remember we went to the writer's office, and Waylon Green, who was a staff writer, amazing writer, Waylon Green, who wrote the movie The Wild Bunch, Sorcerer, tremendous talent, um, Hill Street Blues alum saw us both and looked at George. He was, George, that's the scraggliest thing I've ever seen. Noah, that's a real, like, that's a Romanoff beard. Look at that. That's <laughs> and, and I remember George was just so, he was jealous. <laughs> uh, and uh, they decided to let me keep it. They thought, you know, I think my character was moving into a dorm and yep. was sort of adopting a little mm -hmm. authority stance and it, it kind of fit with his elevated status as, uh, as a dorm res. Uh, and I think that they also saw downfield about how we have a funny way of making him have to shave it one day. Yes. That'll be, yep. Um, I think you're probably the only but, character who have an entire gag written around getting rid of his beard. That would. I have, because as you can see, I don't throw anything away. A letter uh, from Bob Daly, who was the president of Warner Television at the time, basically saying, Noah, I've only written this letter once before in my career, and it was to Harrison Ford when I saw the early rushes on the fugitive shave that fucking thing off. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yes, sir. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, and I, I can imagine it felt pretty good to make George Clooney jealous about anything at that I time. I can count it on one hand the times I think I've, been, I've had it happen. Once I made a basketball shot outside our soundstage from a great distance that I think also <laughs> impressed him. That's about it. <laughs> Hey, hold, you know, yeah, take them where you can get it. Yeah. Oh, so I'm, I'm just, that's just amazing. Uh, what lessons did you take with you from your time on ER into other productions you've worked on since? I know we touched on this a little bit with the speech, but are there any other big things you took away? Hmm. You know, it's a little, 
ER found itself in into everybody's life at different stages of their life and career. You know, um, it came early for me, which meant that there was going to be a period of time where I couldn't figure out why nothing was quite the same as it was when I started. You know, uh, so it, the other jobs I've done have been a, sort of a, a retrospective dissection of what that really must have been doing right in order to make it work as well as it did. Uh, and so it's sort of like having a really excellent model that you know you can keep aspiring to uh, and that's when i go into other jobs that's what i'm looking for i'm not looking to replicate any of it specifically but i'm looking to find an energy between an ensemble that's not competitive that's really cooperative you know that's engaged and and checked in and invested uh, i'm looking for writers that are different and have individual voices, but understand the individual voices of the characters and can write directly to them so that nothing ever feels homogenized. And it almost feels like story flows inevitably from who these characters are because of who they are. You know, little things like that. A crew that's built of enough young people who are hustlers with enough veterans who know their way around, uh, you know, who are trying to get one last great one under their belt before they retire. Like you're looking for all those little things. Mm -hmm. It's, it's got to ruin uh, other experiences for you to a certain degree, having that be your first big one like that. It's got to sort of like everything has to sort of live up to that expectation thereafter to a certain degree. It doesn't really it doesn't ruin it. It just makes it feel even that much more special and makes it not feel like you're gaslighting yourself by saying it was better than it was. You know, right. We all have a tendency to kind of glory day our past. But when the ER gang gets together, and we very rarely do, we are able to kind of go, man, well, that was something, right? Yeah, yeah, it was good. <laughs> we did our yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that's what we get from from some of the interviews we've done where people maybe not necessarily have talked about this for forever because it's been off the show for what God knows how long at this point. But a lot of the interviews we've had, people go, yeah, that was pretty neat. <laughs> Thanks. <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> so. It's tough to have perspective when you're in the middle of it. It's tough to have perspective uh, you know, I remember seeing a quote, this is going to sound, you know, I think I've even said this before. I said it in Warren Littlefield's book. Uh, uh, I remember hearing Neil Armstrong say that in a lot of ways he felt like he missed out on the moon landing because he was on the moon, you know, that sometimes a collective experience isn't enjoyed by the participants of that experience. It's enjoyed by everybody else who's reacting to it and gets to participate in it. Um, and ER was that way. I think we all get to participate in it after we finished working. Then it's kind of like Survivor. Once you get voted off the island, you get to join the public and become a viewer and enjoy it for, for itself. So that, that kind of perfectly segues into my next question that your character's arc on the show sort of mirrors your own in a way. You start out as you know, fresh faced 22 year old kid starting out as a young professional and over time uh, growing into a husband and a father. Is that something you were able to appreciate at the time, or is it only come in the years since the show ended? Both. I mean, I, I remember right after my son was born, we had a storyline with a kid, little kid, put him on the table. It's like the first time in, I don't know, eight years or something. I was like, come on, guys, this is a kid. This is really serious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was suddenly a very different doctor because I recognized the fragility of what a child is yeah. once I had one. Um, so it was an experience that continually informed itself as my life experience kind of broadened. Uh, 
yeah i mean I, films and plays are, are are finite events with you know structure that doesn't move mm-hmm. you have a beginning a middle and an end tv is this other animal where you begin it maybe closely aligned with the character you're playing or maybe not too close but over a period of time you inevitably find those points of synchronicity or the writers do because you're looking for things to 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 grab onto so i feel like you know they figured out pretty early like let's put carter in noah's trajectory and vice versa and just let him walk through this yeah. I, I believe it was uh yvette freeman when we talked to her i believe she was the one that was that pointed out that was like yes there's technically no main character it's an ensemble cast she's like but if you watch that show from beginning to end she's like you're just watching noah grow up like she was like he's this you know baby when the show starts she's like and then we get to see him get married and have kids and all this other stuff and 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 she, and she was speaking about you not about john carter the character she's like she's <laughs> like it's really the story of watching him grow up that's very nice to hear she is an unbelievably talented woman you know i feel incredibly great that, that you know whether you're talking about yvette or Connie Mary blazington or abraham ben ruby or deezer d or ellen Crawford, you know, you're talking about the pantheon of the greatest character actors that you've seen in TV and film and movies in the last 50 years, and we put them all in pig scrubs and gave them two lines an episode, you know? But they make it yeah. work. Of course like, so do. much. I love, uh, it's some of my favorite stuff, just watching the nurses in the back it's doing phenomenal. whatever they're but doing. They're phenomenal well, like... because they're phenomenal actors who, you know, subscribe to the theory that there's no small role and you can fill any moment if you're if you're invested absolutely and they made the show i mean as soon as one person walks in and says phone call dr green and you don't believe it everything goes out the window yeah so you return for a brief period just before the show's finale for a few episodes before what was that experience like for you coming back and helping close the book on the show that you really helped start it was always in the cards in a way, you know, when I left, I left for very specific reasons, which is because I didn't want to spend 80 hours a week on the soundstage and miss my son growing up. He was born November 9th, 2002. I went to work the following Monday and for the first time looked at my watch and was like, come on, let's go. What are we doing? And realized, oh, where do I want to be? You know? mm-hmm. um, but I left, I called it a divorce with visitation rights. I knew that I didn't want to say <laughs> goodbye because I knew that if John felt that Carter's beginning in the pilot was getting chaptered, then it really needed to be bookended in the end. And I wanted to be very much a part of that whenever it came. So I think I negotiated eight episodes to be used at their discretion. And they chose to use four in the 12th, four in the, or I can't remember. But anyway, I took two full seasons yeah. off. Yeah. And then ended up coming back and doing more than four, maybe five or six in that last season to finish it out. Um, getting to come back, first of all, being off the show and having the show still be on was very disconcerting. I, enjoyed <laughs> it all. I couldn't watch it. I felt like I was watching somebody else raise my children and it was a really mm-hmm. hard period of time to, and I had to walk away from it completely and ignore that it was still on. Uh, I apologize to all those wonderful actors who were carrying the show through those years. Um, but I was basically just sort of waiting for the phone call to come back and to finish it up and getting to come back and work with those actors again and be on that set and say goodbye to that crew and have Rod Holcomb come back and be part of that finale the way that he was in the beginning was like perfect. 
But that's so impressive for you, though, that you you were able to look at that and acknowledge what your needs were as a performer at that time to go, I'm not going to be able to give this my all because I want to go be with my son and be able to walk away from that. Yeah. Yeah, it felt very much like it was time. And, you know, I'd watched everybody else go already. You know, mm -hmm. Everybody was gone by episode eight that I'd worked with in the first couple of seasons. Mm -hmm. um, when you so. when you came back in the last season, was it sort of like an immediate, like you said, when you all get together now, is it a, an immediate fallback into old habits and everything's the same, just like we never left? Or was there this moment of like, hey, that there's a guy sitting in my chair there that wasn't there when I left or like things are different now. I don't recognize names and faces the same way I did. I mean, I know there was a lot of people that were there on day one that were there at the end. Both, but you know, that only helps. And I kind of leaned into that as much as I could find it. I didn't, I wanted the character to come back and not know how he fit into this place or know who he, you know, so anytime that I can find one of those points of, of something to sort of grab onto, I tend to lean into it. So even if it wasn't there, I would have looked for it. And I think the fact that I didn't know some of the crew members and didn't know some of the cast members allowed me that sense of separation and distance that I was looking for to come back for the energy. Right. Were you generally, were you generally happy with how your character ended up in that final episode with donating all of, of Carter's money to, to make that wonderful, beautiful medical facility? Was that something that you feel like is in character for him? Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, not to get too airy fairy about it, but, uh, I've always thought of Carter as sort of like Henry the fourth part one in the Shakespearean plays. Mm -hmm. um, he's going to be King. He's going to be Harry Henry the fifth, but not yet. He's first, he's got to improve himself with Falstaff and the thieves and the vagabonds and people at the tavern, because that's who he feels are the legitimate people. And then once he's experienced that he can accept the mantle of his birth and move on. Uh, part of accepting the mantle of his birth for Carter, I felt, was saying, I accept that I don't want to be defined by this wealth that's defined my family. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to do good with it, but no longer be part of that or defining myself as somehow uh, on top of that fortune. So it seemed in keeping with his sensibilities of wanting to sort of both legitimize himself, put himself sort of in difficult situations and not rest on reputation or, or family fortune. Since, since you said it was such a, a difficult experience to have the show be on and not be on it at the same time, like when the show was finally like the, they called cut on that last episode, was that just like a sense of relief for you finally, where you could say like, I can finally put this character to bed and finally put my, make my peace with this show. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, I think, you know, it was a melancholy moment, regardless, just because you're trying to figure out how to make sense of what's been this really seminal chapter. But you're at least now to sort of peer around the backside of it a little bit and get a glimpse of what life is going to be like. You know, it's a, it's not the shortest anecdote, but I think it's perfectly appropriate to tell here. Like four days later, after we called kind of five days later, I got an audition to go read for a Clint Eastwood movie called Flags of Our Fathers. And Clint Eastwood's office was right behind the ER soundstage oh, wow. in El Paso offices. And so I thought, this will be great. You know, I'm going to go back to the lot and I'll go and start my film career. <laughs> and I drove into gate two at Warner Brothers. My picture, our picture is still painted on the outside of the building. <laughs> that I clock it on my way in. And the guy says, uh, hey, can I see your, your ID, Noah? Can I see your ID, Noah? <laughs> 
handed my idea like I do. And he says, oh, dude, I'm sorry. I don't have a drive on for you today. What I'm going to need you to do is pull a UE and then you go across the street to the visitor's lot and then come through the pedestrian gate. Wow. And I said, uh, yeah, okay. You know, I get it. So I pulled the U-turn. I go across the street and there's like no parking on every level. I finally go up to the roof and I park on the roof and I walk all the way down. I walk across the street and I walk up to the pedestrian gate and the woman says, can I see your pass? And I realize I've left it in my car <laughs> across the street. So I say, you know what? Uh, he just gave it to me. I'm Noah Wiley. I was on ER. I have an audition for Clint Eastwood. It's at Mel Postorch. I sorry, I can't let you on with this. Oh. And I say, um, oh. and I never do this ever. But I said, is there like a supervisor or just something you can call it? Because I'm kind of late. I don't want to run all the way back there. And she <sighs> looked at me. She picks up the phone. She says, yes, hello. I have a Noah Wiley. And I said, Wiley. She says, why, 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 Wiley? <laughs> I said, yes. Noah Wiley here. He says he's on ER. Sir, that show was canceled. I was just you know, on it like four days ago. And she goes, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you on this time, but you cannot come back here without a pass. And I said, okay. And I walked past her and I'm, I'm like rattled now. And I'm, I have to walk past stage 11 to get to Mount Paso. So I thought to myself, you know what? One last look at the old place. Why not to boost the guilt of confidence? And I open the soundstage door, and instead of seeing the emergency room, I'm looking at the back wall of the soundstage. Oh. They had taken the whole set down in four days. And for the first time, I'm looking at just emptiness. And I closed the door to make sure I was in the right place and said, ER stage, they put the plaque up. But the set was gone. And I thought, okay. And I walked into Mel Paso and there was, it's, um, if you know what a cattle call is, it's when there's a whole bunch of actors there and they're all sitting there. They all look at me and uh, one of them says, signing sheets over there. And I walked over and signed my name and sat down and thought, here we go. Wow, that th that could have been the episode after the finale. Like that should have been. That, yeah. That, that there's your premise for the follow up to ER right there. Wow. Um, but much of the way that I was grateful for those couple of years of unemployment early in my career, I was very grateful for that lesson to so to come so quickly to the end of the show where yep. it's a it's funny. It was funny to me at yeah. the time, but it was also one of those moments where you go like, right, okay, that was a great show. There's been a lot of great shows. Now what are you gonna do? You know. Yeah. Right. Carter goes to work as an internalist in the hospital and forgets his parking badge. Yeah, like it's in perfectly. Get it? Yeah, it's good. Can you call the doctor? Can you call somebody? And just call Halle. She'll vouch That's for right. you. That's right. Yeah. Get get Lydia. She knows what I'm about. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we like to do is we like to reach out to our listeners and your fans and see if anybody has any questions because nobody gets to do this. This is this is not something people get to do that often and. Um, one of the questions that we had submitted was, of all the directors on the show, who was your favorite and who was best at getting the most out of the actors on screen? Um, well, my list is, is pretty sh short, but not because, you know, we didn't have great directors, but because if you're asking that specifically about who got the best mm -hmm. out of us, I think you're talking about Jonathan Kaplan, Chris mm -hmm. Trulak, uh john wells because he's the boss but also he's a very good director but um i i felt personally that jonathan kaplan and chris Schulich brought the best out of me 
and Richard Thorpe too, who was, um, you know, our DP, who got handed a lot of episodes. He may have directed more episodes than anybody else, but they weren't the really sexy episodes. They weren't the ones that were coming during sweeps weeks. They were the right. grinded out episodes, you know, 13, 14, 17, you know, those. Yep. Um, and I sometimes felt with him a great simpatico, like, hey, you know, this isn't necessarily the best script or whatever, but we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill this for you, and we're gonna find moments here together. Uh, so those three, and you know, obviously Quentin Tarantino came, coming in was a big oh, deal, yeah. and we had uh, Mimi Leader was was phenomenal to work with, uh, and she had an exceptional taste and gave me a lot of trust. Um, so there's my list. I mean, it's five or six people. So you you do have sort of a general awareness as an actor of when you're doing the mids the, the not mid season sweeps but the mid season filler episode of like, yeah, we just got to get through this one. Not every episode is gone with the wind until it's not right. I was a cocky young man. I still am a very cocky. I'm a cocky old man now, <laughs> and I kind of have the sensibility like you should be able to hit a pretty high batting average when you play in pro leagues. And I remember once hearing, I won't say who it was, but one of the producers on our show say something to the effect of, you know, if we get 13 out of 22, that's a really great season. And I was thinking, that's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> like, who is, like uh, 19 maybe two dogs you know one not so good like i i still feel that way so um yes when the, when you get an episode that you kind of feel like oh, why isn't this great this is supposed to be great i i would i would definitely feel yeah it. that's where the learning comes in you know it's that's where i'm having a wonderful opportunity right now i'm on, i'm working on the writing staff of leverage redemption this season the show that i've been doing for the last oh yeah and uh being on the writing staff for the first time has given me an opportunity to really see how the sausage gets made and have so much greater empathy for the complexities of what it means to craft a storyline yeah. and from from start to finish and execute a script even from a well written outline is very difficult and when you're floating an ensemble that's as large as those er ensembles were it's a it's a balancing act that i never gave its due at, when i was on it and uh, only really complained about when it dipped below what i considered to be a line of quality that we shouldn't dip below and you know it's such crap <laughs> Um, it was great writing consistently, uh, almost week, you know, better than you, you could ever find anywhere else. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't, I don't think we often identify any that we would consider big stinkers, even six seasons. in. there's a couple where we go, eh, but you know, that's going to happen with any show, but I don't think there's any where we were, we've just been like, yeah. <laughs> and even, even the ones where there's not like, even the ones that aren't super, super memorable, there's always at least one patient or one moment or one scene or something in each episode to kind of grab onto and go like damn mm -hmm. that you know carter really killed it this episode or or you know genie really killed it this episode somebody somebody was firing on their a game even if all the you know pistons weren't firing at the same time you know what that's an excellent point and i should probably cut to that too that back in those days the script that was not a good script for me was one that was not heavy for me <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough um yeah. And I probably looked at it a lot through that lens too. We've had a few of those too. We have had a couple where uh we we note like, oh, you know, ten minutes into the episode, Carter's gone. Like it was it was a it was a light week for yeah. him that week. Like, you know, like he comes in and, you know, gets assigned something and then waves and then says goodbye and we don't see him anymore. It was never because I was booked at another job. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> 
it was never a scheduling <laughs> conflict. If they wrote me light, it was just because they were writing somebody else heavy. But they had, yep. I, I remember hearing this story once about there was a boxer named George Chuvalo, really tough boxer, who once went the distance with Muhammad Ali. And somebody was curious about what made George Chuvalo so tough. And they found out his father had worked as a knocker in a meatpacking plant, killing cows Ooh. one after the other all day long. That was a job. And they told him one time, like, you've been here for 30 years. You've never taken a vacation. You have to take two weeks vacation. The union insists. So he took his vacation sitting in a chair behind the guy that had his job for two weeks, waiting for the two <laughs> weeks to be so he could go back to work. That is how, when they wrote me light, I would feel. I would, like, sit on, I'd sit on set. I'd just wait. You know, maybe they, I could walk through the back of the scene. I've heard that. I cannot remember for the life of me which crew member said it, but they were like, out of all my years working on the show, they were like, the only person who would ever stay and watch when they weren't, like, when they were done for the day was Nola Wiley. And I I can't (laughs) for the life of me remember who it was, but it was. It's, it's driving me nuts. Was it Guy, uh, maybe? Maybe. It was either Guy or it might have been Darren, the props guy, but yeah. Could have been. It, one of them, yeah. they were like, in all my, and they were like, on, on that show and on other shows, they were like, when your day is done, you go home. And they were like, not Noah Wiley. He's like, he would just sit there and watch the monitor in case, you know, oh, hey, jump in. Maybe we need you for this scene or, you know, whatever. Like, You know, I used to do a lot is, you know, in those OR scenes or the uh, trauma scenes. I was really good at passing those instruments and doing all that. So sometimes I'd hang out and just be a hand insert for another doctor, you know, and just do the ET and just yeah. Roll, you know. Just be, be choreographed. Just here's a scalpel. Yeah. You're good. And I know we touched on this next question a little bit, but just if there's any more you want to fill in, um, our fans also ask, how much of Noah Wiley is in the character of John Carter and vice versa? I don't know how to quantify that. A lot right a lot a lot lot. it's all me and it's all very you know various parts and and aspects of me for sure i mean that character ran for so long and went through so many different things that after a while you sort of play your reality you come to work tired you go i'm gonna play tired this week Mm -hmm. you know you don't have anything written for you that specifically says one thing or another so you kind of choose where you're at and find that to be the strongest choice uh on that same line of questioning, uh, in the in the first or second episode, uh, you have a very famous middle part, uh, Buster Brown haircut. Was that Noah Wiley, or is that a decision that they made to make you look younger? Because we oh had a lot God. of fun with that haircut. It was uh, <laughs> me being really young and not knowing how to be assertive in the hair and makeup chair. <laughs> <laughs> me being i remember we had a guy i think he's dead now i can tell this story his name was john Enzarelli. he was the head of the la makeup unit for years old school makeup artist who's like you want to know how you should look on camera kid let me line your eyes and he'd take this pencil <laughs> and like put liza manelli aligner on, on me like this and then he'd pancake me up and george and i would go into his trailer every morning and he'd hand me a paper towel and he'd take one and we'd wipe straight down <laughs> and leave just a little bit under our eyes because we'd been out the night before, basically wipe the rest of the makeup off and go to work. Um, that haircut, I, I was so embarrassed because they did so many promo photos after that <laughs> in that haircut. All those promo photos of I got that stupid ass haircut mm-hmm. on in my ear and the part, oh God. Uh, yeah. I was maybe leaning into the goofiness of it but I, I think I've always had enough vanity not to have wanted to look like that crazy corner. Sure. I mean, it, you made it work, you know, working, working with what they're giving you. I call my Gomez Adams look. Yeah. <laughs> yep, you're good. 
All right. Well, one final question that we make a habit out of asking everybody we talk to from the show. What do you think it is important for fans of ER to know about it from your unique perspective? In other words, when you think back on your time on the show, what would you want fans to know about the experience that wouldn't necessarily be clear just from watching? You know, we did that ER reunion, that Zoom reunion a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Gloria organized that. And she called me to do that. And I thought, I'll do anything for Gloria. She and I have worked together a few times since ER. And uh, I thought she'll get that and she'll get maybe Ellen, maybe she'll get, you know, Abe. Uh, but I didn't think she'd get very many people. And suddenly I saw a press release that said, George Clooney, Anthony Edwards, and Juliana Margulies, <laughs> Noah Riley, Paul McCrane, Alex Kingston, Laura Innes, on and on and on. Uh, that everybody jumped at the chance to do it. And as soon as we got on and we saw each other's faces and more importantly, when we heard each other's laughs, we all just melted. Mm -hmm. And it validated for me that the experience was as loving and as fun and as rare as I remember it being. And that the chemistry we had back then was dynamic and kinetic and, uh, and evidence 25 years later, you know, through Zoom. So that's what, if fans cared to know, if they were curious, like, what was it like to make that show? It was great. And we really did care for each other and support each other and, and ask the highest of each other's work and, and professionalism, but feel good about bringing it every day. Mm -hmm.